um, this scenario. So Matthew chapter 26 and verses 36 to 46 is our text, but we'll begin reading in, in verse number one. The title of the message today is Christ and the Cup. Christ and the Cup. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, Not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always will have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat this, my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it was written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. 
But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you this very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So you could not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, Your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of the sinners. Rise. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While he was still speaking, Judas came. Thus says the Word of God. May God bless the reading of his Word among his people. Would you pray with me? Father, as we sit at the table that's been prepared for us with this bread, Oh, Father, we pray that you would bring nourishment into our hungry souls. Father, teach us what hunger is and what thirst is, for we have appetites for other things. And show us how satisfying the Savior can be. Lord, our prayer certainly would be that that if someone were to listen to the Word of God this morning and We pray that you would show them that they need a Savior too. That like us, they needed to look upon someone who would die in their place to make amends, to make things right between you and them. Oh, Father, today would be that day and we would rejoice. Oh, Father, let us not be sleepy this morning as we look upon Christ. Let us be watchful and prayerful and filled with faith as we sit under the hearing of the word of God. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
Well, Jesus, along with his disciples here, 11 of them, that is, has left Jerusalem. Jerusalem really wasn't a big enough city to, to handle all of the agricultural demands of, of the population. So outside of the walled city of Jerusalem, there was gardens and orchards and different things. And here at the Mount of Olives is a garden of Gethsemane. And likely this garden was a sort of a public place, but you could have your own little section of that garden. Here it seems that Jesus goes into a what he has probably been to before in Gethsemane, into someone's private garden. We're not told who owns the garden where Jesus here lays on his face. It's interesting, by the way, we're actually not told about several people in this chapter. From the very beginning of the chapter, we're told that a woman comes to Jesus and pours oil on his head. We know from Luke that it's, that it's uh, Mary. We're then told later on that the disciples are told to go into the city and to find a certain man and go and say, is the house prepared? And we're not told his name. Now yet a third figure comes into uh, this account where we're not told whose garden this is. But do you know that I just want to take a moment in, in a very pastoral and a devotional way encourage you. Without disparaging you or diminishing you in any way, people like you and I, our names aren't found in the scriptures, are they? We're just going about life and serving the Lord, and we're not, nothing amazing, we're not dividing the Red Sea, right, you know, and, and calling fire down from heaven. We're just normal Christians, right? But isn't it fascinating and isn't it wonderful that, that God joys to use certain men and unnamed women and someone who owns a garden and someone who will carry a cross, who they're just called from the ranks of, of his people to do great and wondrous things for his redemption plan. And I think that uh, one lesson from this chapter can, can be taken away from, and that is that God delights to use no names like you and I to put his Christ right out front to bring praise to his name. And so someone's garden, we don't know who, but someone's garden and Jesus' face is in that garden on his knees. So they're in this Gethsemane garden, and Gethsemane means the pressing of oil or an oil press. That's what the word literally means, and it's fitting that our Savior would be pressed and would be brought under the crucible of the demands of the cross here in the oil press garden. The disciples have gathered around him, and it seems that as they have gone into the garden that Jesus leaves uh, eight of them uh, towards the gate of the garden, towards the entrance of the garden. And he brings three more further on into the garden with him. It seems that Peter and the sons of Zebedee, that is Zebedee, that is James and John, these three are, are, are asked by Christ to go further into the garden. There's, there may be some observations there to make, but nonetheless, they, they go further into the garden and then Jesus even uh, departs from them further. But he desires that these disciples pray. 
He desires that on this night, the night as they are celebrating the Passover and and recalling all of the great works and the deliverance of God of his people, that they would consider what he had just shared with them at the table and consider that there is a, a Passover lamb that is about ready to be offered. And it's almost as if Jesus has already told them, here's what you should be praying for, here's what you should be supplicating about and here's what you should be petitioning for and here's what you should be rejoicing about remember what you have just experienced at the table now come with me into the garden and let's pray but Jesus has intentions here in the garden to pray in a far different way than any one of us could ever pray for he will pray in a way to receive the cup this morning the first truth that I want us to look at this morning is in the first Uh, object in this passage is the cup the cup Romans 5 and 8 and 9 the Apostle Paul says but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners Christ died for us much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him when Adam sinned the entire human race was plunged into The curse of rebellion. This rebellion was not the first of all, was not first of all between man and woman. This rebellion wasn't just firstly a friction between Adam and Eve and blame shifting and shame. It wasn't even firstly even the murder of brother, a brother against a brother. But the first part of rebellion and the first and preeminent uh, act of rebellion is is man's rebellion against his creator and his holy God. We were created by God to bring glory to him in every way, in every expression, in every action, in every thought. We were created to have perfect harmony with God, and all of that was broken when man chose to reject the goodness of God. Rebellion and holiness cannot exist together. God is supreme and he will have all of his creations subject to him willfully, willingly, and it will be judged. Rebellion will be judged and rebellion will be condemned because God is holy. And because of the vast, infinite perfection of God, the degree to which sin is rebellious is infinite. Your sin is infinitely wicked. So often we are mathematicians when it comes to our sinfulness, aren't we? We have either presumptuously calculated the effects of our sin or in a diminishing way after our sin have collected and reckoned and given an account of how our sin may have affected ourselves, God, and others. But the fact is that because God is vast and He is infinite in His perfections, He is thoroughly beautiful and holy and complete our sin is so, in, in, in the opposite, is infinitely wicked. There is no bottom, there is no final number, there's no final reckoning of how just, how sinful, how rebellious our sin is. It is hellish. It isn't little. Our sin is infinitely and supremely and bottomlessly evil because God is exactly the opposite therefore the judgment the judgment of our sin 
must go all the way to the depth and it must go all the way across the breadth morally. We're used to judgments in our world that are incomplete. The taking of a life and someone has a five-year sentence. Justice is satisfied in our land. That's how the law was written. That's how the judgment was made. But this is not how God works. Because God is infinitely holy and pure, sin is infinitely dark and evil. And so God punishes all the way to the end of our sin. God's judgment is eternal, the breadth of it, and it's infinite, the depth of it, against sin. And this cup, the picture of the cup of judgment, has been passed on from Adam to you and I. When we entered into this world, we were holding, truly holding, a cup, a cup of judgment. However, there was one perfect man, the Son of God, who broke in and interrupted that line, the line of cup holding, so that you and I might not have to empty the cup and drink of it. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this passage, said this, The fact is that God has sworn and would not repent that sin must be punished. In the very essence of things, it was right that transgression should meet with its just recompense. There would be no moral government kept up. There could be no unimpeachable governor unless conviction followed crime and retribution was exacted of the guilty. It was not right, nor could it have been righteous on any ground for sin to have been passed over without its having been punished or for iniquity to have escaped without any affliction. But when Jesus Christ comes and puts his own sufferings into the place of our sufferings, the law is fully vindicated while mercy is fitly displayed. A man dies, a soul is given, a life is offered, the just for the unjust. This version goes on to say, what if I say that instead of justice being less satisfied with the death of Christ than with the deaths of the ten thousand thousands of sinners for whom he died, it is more satisfied and it is most highly honored. He explains, had all the sinners that ever lived in the world been consigned to hell, they could not have discharged the claims of justice. They must still continue to endure the scourge of crime they could never expiate. But the Son of God, blending the infinite majesty of his deity with the perfect capacity to suffer as a man, offered an atonement of such inestimable value that he has absolutely paid the entire debt for his people. Well may justice be content since it has been received more from the surety than it could ever have been exacted from the assured. 
Thus the debt was paid to the eternal Father. May I humbly offer you a paraphrase from the Prince of Preachers here. Had God cast the entire human race in hell, they would burn for eternity without end and justice, listen, would never be satisfied because it would be always being satisfied. But Jesus went all the way to the end of eternity in its effects of punishment and in its sentence of judgment and bore that wrath and satisfied the law all the way to its infinitude. Is that a word? While you and I coldly and casually calculate our sin and its effects in the short term, we are grossly and we are infinitely off track. Jesus bore out an infinity of atonement. Let me say again, if all of the human race would be plunged into hell and to suffer for eternity, God's justice would only continually be satisfied, but never be ended. But Jesus ended it for those who will be hidden in him. That's what's in the cup. So when Jesus prays three times for for God the Father, is there any other way than for me to drink infinities, eternities judgment? Part of us can say, I don't blame him. But he is also showing us something marvelous. There was no other way for God's justice to be satisfied. If God was to pour out eternal judgment on the entire human race, his justice would only be being, I don't know what sort of grammar that is, it's like present, future participles, something like that. But Jesus finished it. So what's in the cup? What's in the cup is the wrath of God. And it's eternal. And it's deserved. And secondly, Jesus then took the cup. The cup is a picture in the ancient world and and in ancient writings, uh, such as even the book of Psalms. It was a common figure to depict a picture of, of judgment. It's not something you and I use in our everyday language or in our understanding of how judgment is meted out. But the psalmist writes about the cup in Psalm 75, 8, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup. 
and the wine is red. And the idea there in the picture is that the wine is ripe. It's, it's at its peak. There's no more, no more fermenting to be done to this wine. It is, it is ready to be drank, drunk. It is ready to be consumed. It's time. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup and the wine is red. It is fully mixed and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. Now I said a word to the believer this morning, just a moment ago. The Psalm 75a is a word from the psalmist, from the word of God, to those who will refuse to trust in Jesus Christ. And in Psalm 75a, the psalmist is picturing, is showing what the end is to the person who will refuse to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. God will pour out the dregs of his wrath endlessly, mercilessly, upon those who will refuse his Son. He pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down the cup of God's wrath will be empty, not a drop left of the infinite wrath of God upon those who refuse his son. The consequences for believing upon Christ and refusing Christ couldn't be more drastically severe. In one In one position, when you have entrusted your Christ to the forgiving and cleansing power of his work on the cross, you you never see the wrath of God. You only see the kindness and graciousness of an infinitely merciful God from the time you trust in Jesus Christ for all eternity without end. And no fading and no shading of that grace, no antiquity of it, no, no antiquing of it, no oldness of it. It is wonderful and every day becomes a greater day of walking in his grace for this person who will trust that Jesus Christ drank the cup for them. But for the person who says, I'm not trusting in Jesus Christ to drink the cup because I don't believe I deserve it and I'm not going to believe in God and I have many other ways that I think I'm going to make life work and even beyond life. For this person, God empties the cup on them every last drop. God prepared, God prepared his servant Jesus to drink this cup a long time ago. And he prepared Jesus to drink this cup for even you who say, who say, I'm refusing it. But this morning, you place your trust in him, he has drank it for you. Listen to Isaiah 51 and verses 21 through 23. Therefore hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk but not with wine. Thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God who pleads the cause of his people. Behold, 
I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, and you shall drink no more. And I will put it into the hand of the tormentors who have said to you, bow down that we may pass over. And you have made your back like the ground and like the street for them to pass over. God says, you can hold a cup and stagger around like you're drunk and live your life that way. Or I can take the cup from you and you will not have to drink of it. But the cup has to be emptied. It's either going to be emptied upon Jesus Christ or it's going to be emptied upon you. God made the cup and God drank the cup. God was not willing that his creation would exist in rebellion without a way to be reconciled to himself. While he is perfect in character and is full of holiness and is justice, he still mediated out mercy. Even though we as a human race did not deserve mercy, God, part of his nature is that he is merciful. He made a way for his creation to return to its perfect standing before him by introducing himself, his very own self, into the human race to stand in the place of we who were fallen, we who were broken, we who are dysfunctional, we who are wicked rebels. And he came as a substitute through Jesus Christ. And this substitute, Jesus Christ, willingly, not begrudgingly, willingly submitted to the Godhead, even the Heavenly Father, and he became a lowly man, retaining his perfections. But Jesus drank the cup that we should have drank. Every single one of us who are believers here this morning, you and I should have that cup poured on our heads. We should drink it down. It is what we deserve is to experience the full measure of God's wrath without mercy. There's nothing deserving of us. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have each turned his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. But unlike the last cup of the Last Supper, remember Jesus said, he lifted up the cup and said, I will not drink of this cup until I drink of it with you in the kingdom to come. Matthew, just a few verses later, says there's another cup. And this cup Jesus will drink. So Jesus, instead of drinking the, the cup of joy, the cup of redemption in the, um, in the Seder service, What cup does Jesus drink? Jesus drinks the cup of sorrow. Notice, by the way, two times in which Matthew records that he is full of sorrow. In verse 37 in Matthew 26, And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be full of sorrow, sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful. We sang this morning the song, Man of Sorrows, what a name for the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our what? 
And Matthew shows us here. He takes our sorrows into the garden. Sorrowful and troubled. And it's interesting then as he, as Matthew records that Jesus prayed before the Father. His other words for prayer used in the scripture. That is a, a bent knee on a prostrate um, um, posture. But the word that Matthew uses specifically here isn't just the word that you use before a king or when you're asking for something. It is the word that is exclusively used in religious terms. But Jesus is going before the Father and he is praying. Jesus will not drink the cup of joy, but he will drink the cup of wrath. And he was staying on target. He was staying on mission. This wasn't helpless submission And it wasn't that Jesus was battered into submission. And it isn't that the conspiracy is far beyond his capability to sort through it and to free himself from the snare that is about ready to be laid before him by Judas. This isn't a Jesus. This isn't a Savior who is utterly frustrated. This isn't a Jesus who who looks down, listen, looks down with his lens and sees you and I and says, well, I guess I'll die for Brad. I don't really want to. He's not worth it. But this is a Jesus who with perfect trust submits to the love that will never let him go. Do you remember that the Father loves the Son? And here Jesus is communing with the Father. And as he's praying to the Father and he's pleading to the Father, his assurance, listen, his assurance It's his unity with his Father, the love of the Father. He knows what the end is going to be like. He knows he's going to be received into the everlasting loving arms of his Father, but he knows between here and there, there is going to be the forsaking from the Father. He knows he has to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. He knows he has to walk walk past the back of the Father. But he entrusts himself that when he is forsaken, he will be restored in the love of the Father. Jesus says, My Father, in verse 42, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, then your will be done. Your will be done. In Matthew chapter 5, Matthew records the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6. And Jesus says, pray this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And then how do, what does the next word say it out loud? Thy will be done. But what is the will of the Father? to exalt his redeeming work through his son, Jesus Christ. Father, if there's no other way, then your will be done. Because I came to do your will. At the bottom of the cup was the will of God and the love of God for mankind. Jesus was thirsty to do the will of the Father. 
in the King James Version, you're familiar with the words, probably more familiar with the words than our, our more modern version this morning. The words read, let this cup pass from me. This might have been a common way of thinking about a method that was used in the Roman army and how they would execute soldiers who had been sentenced to death for various crimes of treason. At times, at times a Roman soldier who was found guilty of treason or some other crime would be led to a high cliff and he would be pushed over the cliff. If there was multiple in on the conspiracy, one by one they would watch each other be pushed over the cliff and the purpose was simply to punish them to an end without any hope. But a different method was used that would involve a cup that was meant to steal the soldiers, not to, not to punish them, but to steal them, to make them hardened for war, hardened for the greater good of, of the mighty Roman Empire. And the soldiers would be lined up one after another along in a long line. And the first soldier would be given a cup full of hemlock or some other deadly poison. And hemlock is recorded to create great pain and anguish in the human body before finally taking over the body and death. The first man who would be given the cup, if he had courage, if he had heart, if he had compassion for his comrades, he could drink the full measure of the cup. And this is where we get the expression to the bitter dregs from. He could drink the full measure of the cup to the bitter dregs and he himself would succumb to its effects almost immediately. And the rest of the soldiers could walk away. If he did, they would all go free. But if he did not drink all of the cup, then the next man must drink the poison. And he had the same choice as the first man. Would he drink it all the way to the last drop? Would he empty the cup? Would he drink the full measure and suffer its pains so that the rest of his companions would go free? Or would he leave some in the cup? Each man to whom the cup was passed would have the same choice. And you know, this is like what Christ is doing in the garden for you and I. They're against the evil one, and they're against the judgment of a father full of wrath towards sin. God would take the cup, and he wouldn't pass it on to you and I. He would drink it down to its bitter dregs. 
I notice here that in the garden, Jesus investigates in the, in the sovereign wisdom of God. Is there any other way for our redemption? And maybe you're sitting here today, and maybe you have been believing all of your life that there's another way to get to heaven. There's another way to make amends with God. There's another way for peace in your life. There's another way to live happily ever after. That you, you haven't always, you haven't thought that everything the Bible has said is really true. It has good things. But here in the garden, I find it remarkable and a wonderful revelation for us to see that Jesus himself asked the question, is there any other way for man to be redeemed? And God responds with, no, there is none. Notice what else is happening in the garden. The disciples are sleeping. Here was the men who said, we will die with you. And they couldn't even pray with them. This is our Savior. Disciples of Christ, you may sleep, you may be unfaithful, you may be faithless, full of doubt, even rebellious at times, and wicked in your thinking. But I find it in summation of this passage, Jesus drinks the cup while his disciples sleep. O faithless one this morning, child of God, disciple, unfaithful disciple of God, this is our Savior. He has done everything to accomplish our righteousness even when we were failing at it. And he has secured for us an eternal salvation because the cup is empty. There's no wrath left for us. Let's pray.